Welcome, everyone, to the Punisher podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me as always is Pete. Hello, Pete. Uncle Teddy sent us the Punisher podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 206, Nakazat, is brought to you by America, Inc. You can't shut us down. Indeed, Pete, this is an episode that takes a grim view of life in the MCU or elsewhere, but uh, I guess that's just how it goes with this show that continues to want to talk about contemporary issues and uh, not be too concerned about people in uh, spandex. Not at all, and when you look at what uh, Frank and his adventures have given us so far this season and some rather meta commentary in this episode, Matt, certainly can't argue with it. Well, with that said, take us to the recap. Frank and Amy are looking at a door. It could get kicked open, but the reverse shot shows it's metal, and kicking isn't a good idea. She knocks, and the spy hole slides open then closed. Frank knocks and says Uncle Teddy sent them. Amy, looking adorable to the man at the door, clicks her heels, and the door opens. The man wants money up front, and he's ready to take pictures. Cash only, and he keeps nothing. Frank starts to knock him around, sending Amy to the development room. What is on those film rolls of hers? While they develop, the photographer reaches for a sawed-off shotgun, but quickly it's in Frank's hand, the barrel on the photographer's chest. Frank is ready to pull the trigger, but Amy waves him off. He could burn the place down if he wants. Cut to the exterior, the place on fire. The credits show the episode's written by Christine Boylan and directed by Jamie M. Dagg. The phone is ringing, and the call is declined by Curtis's lady friend, who spent the night. They're in a hotel room, and he's got it for the week. He blames it on a rodent problem, but we know that the rat is Billy. Life seems pretty good for Curtis. The story follows him to the church basement, where he's handing out chili. He's got glasses for a young veteran. Now that young man can fill out the paperwork, after some chili. We see, though, that Curtis is still carrying his gun. In Dr. Dumont's apartment, Billy slips in, seeing her dressing. We see the scar on her back before she closes the door. Later, Billy's made tea. She notes his behavior is self-destructive, including having listened in on her conversation with Jake last episode. He notes she could lose it all, helping him. Her concern, he shouldn't leave again, or at least not get caught. Billy, alone, does push-ups and sneaks through the doctor's paperwork. He reads her words about him, about his inability to want help. He takes a jigsaw mask and a handgun. He visits Curtis in a parking garage. He's there to say something to the man he shot. He's sorry, but not so sorry that he'll turn himself in. Things are so difficult for Billy, or so he thinks. He wants to be told who ruined his pretty face, but Curtis just can't. Billy walks away. He ends up back at the bar with other veterans from Curtis's group. One of them has his car towed, and the group runs into action. They stop the tow truck, then pull the man from the car and beat him. Billy beats him even worse, briefly. They're impressed at how easy the whole thing was. They could get money using their skills. Still, the young driver gets caught, and he calls Curtis. Now Kurt's aware of Billy somebody, the Marine with a cut face. Elsewhere, Amy's on the phone, making a call about Mr. Polovsnev's breakfast routine. He has breakfast with his kid every day. She notes kids are a weakness, but regrets saying it in front of Frank. 
They watch the Palaznev girls' school, and Amy asks about Frank's late daughter. Next month, she would have been 15. Later, Frank's loading his gun over the developed pictures. Amy would like a gun and lessons, too. He's got one that's empty. She can have it if she can take it. A stumble or two later, and she still doesn't have it. He shows her how to disarm a man. Step three is to shoot the person you just took the gun from. He also notes that every time he returns, he'll call her name. Anyone else? Just shoot with the shotgun. Elsewhere, Pilgrim is praying, flashing back to sitting in a diner, seeing people cough and eat and all that big city nonsense. In the city, they even have cappuccino. Later, Madani gets her usual, and Pilgrim notices her. She pays and leaves. He follows. She turns the corner, and we sense she senses him. She pulls a gun on Pilgrim, but he says that they have a mutual acquaintance, Frank Castle. He can keep the secret if she tells him where Castle is, and the girl. He recommends she repent. They'll speak again soon, as she's easy to find. She races back to the diner, telling them to clean nothing. She takes a pile of dishes to get screened for DNA. Later in the story, Madani's about to leave her apartment, but knock knock, it's Brett Mahoney bringing coffee. He wants to know who the third man was at the carousel shooting. After all, Billy somehow shot Madani after she ruined his face. Mahoney wants the truth, which shall set her free. He knows the kids at the carousel knew about a man with a skull in his vest. Later, Mahoney subpoenas Dumont's records on Billy, and she gives him the file, keeping one page for herself, while she pontificates about criminals and cops needing control. He notes a lack of control fuels both their jobs. Mahoney leaves, and she moves to the window, but Billy is there. He would have killed Mahoney if outed. She should know better. He knows she isn't happy, that she's trying to control him and herself. He asks her who K.M. is, a name he read in her files. He knocks her down. She stabs him with a fountain pen, then he kisses her deeply. Outside Palavznev's restaurant, Frank takes out the limo driver. Inside, Amy is playing waitress. She delivers to Palavznev a dirty picture. She walks out, followed by the security guys. She turns the corner, putting on a private school neck piece and turning her skirt around to fit the private school, too. She's lost in the crowd while shown Frank is in the limo driving it. He drives to Queens, near where every Marvel New York City show shoots. I mean, the river uh, overlooking Manhattan. Plaznev reflects on having seen in his youth a similar man taken to the woods at the end of a shotgun. Yet here he is, brought down by his own arrogance. Did Frank kill Kazan? No. So maybe they're allies. Does Frank know Anderson and Eliza Schultz? Testament Industries? Soon nations will play second fiddle to corporations, and the Schultzes are first in line of America, Inc. The pictures, the expositional Palaznev says, are of David Schultz, the son, the next president. Frank doesn't care who likes whom, but Palaznev notes either David's orientation or his hiding it will sink his political future. Still, Frank is aiming to shoot him. The daughter of Palaznev is mentioned, and Frank caves a bit, telling the Russian to leave the country and not come back. Later, we see him in an elevator. His two guys are shot by Pilgrim. Then Palaznev gets it. Pilgrim walks. Frank updates Amy, who notes that the Schultzes are guilty as charged, buying Congress one seat at a time, getting up alt-right fake news sites to take out opponents. His steely determination has Amy ready to run, but he asks her to stay. In Curtis's church basement, Curtis waits with a gun. Madani arrives, and Frank is there, too. 
She yells at him about Pilgrim, but Curtis silences them both. He says he found Billy, that the Marine is rolling with some vets. Curtis wants to stop cops from being killed. The plan? Deal with Billy Russo first, then everything else. Frank says that he will find Billy and end it. Pete, let's talk villains in this episode. First up, pervy photography studio guy. Takes you the slightest little bit at the beginning to figure out what exactly is going on. And then you have nothing but contempt for this guy. And that Frank shows the restraint and later regrets not killing him, only burning uh, Reed smoking his uh, his studio out. It it was an interesting way to experience the beginning of the episode in that unlike sometimes when I watch just for fun or sometimes when we watch and podcast, it had been a couple of days since I saw the Punisher. So pop this episode on and immediately they were just standing there at a door and I was like, wait, am I on the right episode? Quick, <laughs> click the thing. Okay. 206. Yeah. Okay. I'm on the right episode. What's going on? Who is this? Where, what, and then to just have it unfolding where you know, the guy's a complete scuzzball. And I think we can objectively say got away easy with merely having his smutty photography studio burned down. Well, beat fairly savagely and, you know, a shotgun waved in his face. But he got off easy, Matt. But from one scuzzball to another, let's talk about Billy. Pete, I think that the defining characteristic uh, of Billy in this episode is his inability to recognize where he's at. He's being told by Dumont that, you know, he kind of continues to have problems in general. She spells some of them out, uh, some of them out in terms of uh, him not seeking help. Him uh, Essentially, her implication is he's not being honest with himself. And though we see him, you know beat the poor tow truck driver and things like that it's all under the umbrella of he's not being self-reflective enough to realize he is his biggest problem well that's just it he is a glutton for punishment and the scene that encapsulates that for me in this episode is when he attacks dumont is stabbed with the pen and then that turns into a love scene of sorts um it certainly was uncomfortable yeah and his his wires are crossed um that you know one minute he's ready to bash somebody in and then it's like no no this is let's let's do this you know they treat getting a a towed car like a special ops mission and then it's hey I know a guy, let's rob a bank, that these somehow seem like good ideas. And that's kind of the astonishing thing about certainly where we've been headed this season, but this episode is a tipping point in terms of the veteran post-service kind of storyline here, now that we've added guys to the group, that there really is this, uh, you know, this disreputable picture being painted and... I think it certainly is, it's part of, uh, or rather should I say, it's taken for granted by the audience that if these guys had been or will get kind of proper reacclimation, proper care, proper assistance, whatever that might be, financial or mental or otherwise, that this wouldn't be happening. But as it is happening, it's like, 
you know, surely there must have been somebody in the writing room or some producer or something saying, do we really want to do this story and have it potentially boiled down into a headline which reads, Netflix, Marvel, The Punisher hates veterans. Yeah, I think they really have to treat it tactfully. And I think they have, given the the one vet who's close with Curtis, who he gave the glasses to and, you know, the chili and then makes his one phone call uh, conceivably to um, after they had retrieved his car, which he was living out of. You know, you can empathize, nay, even sympathize with the, the difficult situations, but it's that nudge in the right or the wrong direction that really makes the story go. He knows he's done the wrong thing. He's leaning on Curtis here. Arguably, he's the one in the greatest need. And then you have somebody like Jake who, you know, eggs this on that they would go and do things in a way that circumvent law and order, the law and order they were sent to other countries to help enforce. And I think without the show beating this next uh, particular story bit too, too greatly, it's this notion of since this isn't their law and order, since it's not what they wanted, they get to circumvent it, which I think has connections to our next villain in Pilgrim, where, you know, Pete, I think, you know, you're, you, you certainly have more training and background in, in the good book and whatnot, but I think there's a thing that's anti-killing in the Bible. Um, <laughs> Pilgrim, though, clearly, you know, in his mind, and he's even said as much in, in earlier episodes, there's essentially this notion of, if it's, if it's, you know, the castoffs from God's kingdom, if it's the bad people, if it's the, if it's the wrong kind of person, then the rules aren't exactly as solid. If, you know, you need to take out three guys in a, in a, uh, in an elevator or something. Or chase, uh, the special agent in charge of New York for the department of Homeland security, um, you know, creep around at her local coffee stand and then have her draw down on you in broad daylight, which we'll, we'll tackle that sin in a little bit. But yeah, Pilgrim sent on this. And now that we've kind of gained some perspective into why, I think it deepens the malevolence of his character even more. I think on the one hand it does. I think also stuff we had discussed in the last episode concerning how much are his rigid views being exploited by the Schultzes. I think there's an element of that at least still at play. Maybe future episodes will be more definitive one way or the other. But, you know, one kind of really senses that he he maintains this dogmatic approach and, you know, do the Schultzes have the same dogmatic approach or do they just put up those alt-right websites in order to get what they want, which is to fuel uh, their company regardless of who's going to do it. And if, if it's the people like uh, Pilgrim who are going to bloody their hands in the name of, of uh, the, the Testament company, then I guess that works too, you know, kind of a bit of an open question, but I think that it's a question nonetheless. And when you bring in a guy like Polozinev, uh, name-checked in the previous episode, but 
this Russian billionaire um, seen in the flesh for the first time with his daughter, with his wife, um, his completely inept security in two separate instances, Matt, um, just made to look like clowns and owning the bad things that he's done in that monologue with Frank. He does own them. What's interesting is that owning is contrasted by the fact that we otherwise see little proof of his badness. Uh, yes. In the prior episode, Pete, he's connected to the Russian president and things like that. There's certain kind of code words that in, in the MCU and in ours, we can, we can agree is probably a bad situation to be in, but how do we see him presented in this episode? Dedicated family man putting his business, probably illegal, but putting his business on pause to make family time. Uh, the caring father, the kind husband. Uh, I'm certainly not saying I don't believe the episode when they say he's bad. Believe me, I do. But it was just, it was interesting to get to the conclusion of his story, you know, bullet in the temple in, a, in an elevator, and to realize what we saw of him was not that bad a guy. No. Um, and when all things are considered that he has legitimate aims for his family in the future, um, you know, shades of uh, Godfather 2 and, you know, what Michael wanted to do with the family. But this is somebody who's lived by the sword his whole life. Should it be surprising that he dies by it? No. I think it's surprising that so soon after we met him that he does and that a man worth billions of dollars gets it from, you know, this priestly figure who is able to corner him in a in an elevator. Really, the, the last threat you would expect. It is interesting to think about and it is a credit to the episode where we both we both see the proof of him being super rich. You know, I don't know, millionaire, billionaire, whatever. He's got the limo. He's got the six security guys at the restaurant, which surprise, surprise. You know, we, we kind of didn't know we're there till they stood up. So there's kind of that appearance of wealth. But you also kind of buy like, and when he goes to secret meetings, of course it's in a half-built building in the garage or, you know, by way of an elevator or things of that sort. So you kind of, you buy both sides, even though, again, kind of it's a tad short on on evidence, I guess, of his riches because wouldn't he always have a ton of protection? Well, no, not if he's going to shed them on the way to whatever the next meet is. And then with Dumont, a, a villain by her own admission in this episode and uh, sleeping with the enemy or an ally now? Well, working backwards, it certainly was an uncomfortable scene to see Billy overpower her. And even if the next episode wants her to have been complicit with, you know, a, a lovemaking that follows, I appreciate that in this episode they cut before and then she melts in his arms overpowered by his masculinity or, or if it's going to get, you know, frankly worse, more non-consensual they picked a good time to cut as well because I think there is that sense of question in our minds. Uh, but of course there's no question that she knows she's kind of chasing, 
she's chasing a, a, a dragon of badness, no uh, Iron Fist pun intended, but she, she's kind of chasing this, this demon, which is in her and in others, and without them doing a lot of flowery, you know, according to Freud or her, you know, her secret psychiatry journal or whatever it is, you just sense that there's something wrong with her. I mean, we've seen as much, but that is what drives her to find these extreme cases, uh, one being Billy, the other being the mysterious KM, presumably others, and it's driving her against what is professionally appropriate, ethically appropriate, legally appropriate. She's physically and figuratively damaged, and as a psychologist, that lends a perspective for certain, but to be harboring Billy you know, the beginning of this episode, I was openly questioning, like, OK, she has let him leave the apartment on several occasions. Like, what does she think is going on? And then she called him on it. So I'm like, you know what? Story sin forgiven, because now it has consequences. And then we wind up where we are at the end of the episode again with consequences. Mahoney comes to see her. Uh, turns into this fight, which then turns into this um, sexual encounter. Let, let's let's be straightforward with what it is, whether it's consensual or not, and then, you know, whatever fallout is going to come as a result of it. Pete, let's talk some theories here. I joked a bit before about, you know, the notion of, is there some sort of Christian set of rules that, that might uh, encourage Pilgrim not to kill? But how do you square his deep and one can assume literal adherence to the word of the Lord and all that he is doing? I think it's spelled out in the connection to the Schultzes and the idea of all right, that you take whatever it is you're going to do and just call it out that, well, no, it's, it's this, it's, it's the opposite. It basically rationalizes every misdeed you could possibly commit. It's, it is a cognitive dissonance on the highest order to say, you know, the killing I just did, that was not a kill. Therefore I did not break. Thou shalt not kill. The thing I said that I was going to get somebody else to pay for. Uh, I, I didn't actually say that either. Pete, next one for me here. Uh, did you feel the story was supposing any kind of subtext to the obviously Christian pilgrim preaching to the Middle Eastern Madani? Oh, I clearly think that was something they had on the writer's room wall for a while. We got to get these two characters together and to have the one very strong in his beliefs, the other faltering in her faith, both to her job and to herself, and to get that lecture set up from the holier-than-thou John Pilgrim. Do you know what nakazat, the uh, Russian word that makes the title, do you know what that means? One of the translations means to punish. The other means drop on Pete. I think it's the punish one and not the dropping on one. Just going to throw that out there. Uh, last one, maybe the biggest one, maybe one I'm even stealing off your plate here, Pete. Uh, who is KM? Okay, so 
it was interesting when that came up and I'm running through the number of characters we've seen across this show and others. Okay. Is this going to be somebody we know? And then later in the episode for the first time we get Dumont's uh, first name for the first time, which is Krista. And I've got to wonder if perhaps one of her issues Maybe like uh, we had with Mary in Iron Fist, perhaps she's dissociative because there when when she said when he said Russo said uh, KM, she's like, what? And yeah, there's the violation of going through her notes, uh, both about himself and about other patients. Um, But it was a really interesting reaction. I did notice, by the way, as we dig a bit deeper with her, um, in her home office, she had two uh, diplomas on the wall. One was from Oberlin College. The other one was from Metro General Hospital. Yes. Um, yes. So a little bit of a connection there, if only if only in passing. I must confess, Pete. What... I think the implication was that Billy was being treated at Metro General. Um, I'm only kind of clicking onto that now but i'm certainly I'm, I'm certainly more than okay with that as a theory i'm also kind of okay like if they didn't like hammer it home like on the psychiatric ward here at metro general where there was that guy in the red suit like forget for the moment whether you know whatever precognition the show had during its the creation of this season that you know this could be curtains for marvel netflix this kind of cycle of production um, I feel like just at a point where it's like, oh, okay, great. Like they're in new, like, it's kind of like, it's neat if it happens, but it's not this major thing. Like Pete in the next episode does, does, uh, I was gonna say Karen page, but of course that's coming up. Does Foggy Nelson show up as the, as the lawyer, that kind of thing. Um, I, I must confess though, I'm not quite sure what accreditation one would get from a hospital. Maybe it's just to be a practicing person there but uh if nothing else it was just it was neat to have on the wall we probably don't need to dig too deeply into it her scar that billy sees for the first time here and of course that precedes their um coupling later on in the episode um you know i'd been on and on about how i thought she was limping you thought maybe she was having some trouble in her heels what is this damage? Was this battlefield damage? Was this, uh, was she attacked by a patient? Possibly this KM? Um, I feel like, and I know Pete, you had picked up on some, some suppositions of her having a military background. And I'm certainly not going to complain if that's the case with her. But I think that we already have three military veterans, the fourth in Madani, a, a veteran of... Uh, shall we say, kind of the security world, the maybe espionage is a tad too much or a tad too kind of James Bond sexy, but, you know, that whole world, that kind of the world of of defense, um, to add another person to it who's going to be like, you know, there I was, the fish out of water, either culturally, because it's a, a boys club, or, you know, when I was in this part of the world where women aren't welcome, I kind of feel like we've been there story-wise, and... You know, again, there's always this line of, you know, I don't wish ill on real people, but if we're going to make her a fictional character and we're going to heap terrible things on her, I kind of would rather it be some other trauma other than another look at the military again. 
one thing that's been praised in particular about this season is looking at Frank Castle through the eyes of um, he is a father. Uh, that comes across very well in this episode. What with Amy talking about how old his daughter would have been, would she have gone to this type of school, et cetera, et cetera, and dealing with her as a surrogate child. But given that she would have been 15 now, um, Frank's daughter, we seem to be getting pretty far away from the massacre at the park. Yes, and that had crossed my mind, and then it had me kind of trying to remember back because of the nebulous origin, a bit nebulous origin of this character in the MCU. You know, this is season two, but the third season that he's been in, and he was already kind of punishing when he first came across Daredevil and whatnot. I kind of was scratching my head saying, wait, how long ago was this? Um, I mean, is my recollection correct, Pete, that the daughter was maybe eight to 10 when killed. Yeah. And that season one, I'm sorry, season two of daredevil in which he appears was in 2016. doesn't mean it could not have been set a little earlier. I Pete, whether it's the MCU, whether it's star Trek, you know, we, we oftentimes end up in the same I don't, I don't quite want to say dead end, but we end up in the same cul-de-sac, which is this. If you dogmatically, slavishly have to go by every single thing that was written about this character, this story, this neck of the universe before, then you're quickly going to realize there's no way out. But if you right. kind of, in the cul-de-sac model, if you kind of find yourself at the end and just loop around and keep on going, then the story goes on too. So... Could we probably get a solid chronology to say, no, she would not be 15, therefore the writers pushed it because Amy is probably 17, 18, 19, and Plaznev's daughter is almost 17, therefore they're all about the same age, therefore they're all the same in Frank's mind and psyche and heart, and they were just pushing that to be writers. True, but you know this is all fake at a certain point. Is this a major thing? Like, Pete, have they gone back and been, you know, is, is this the missing third sibling in the Cunningham family in Happy Days? Uh, no, it's just kind of like, you know, could Frank have been lying or could he have, I don't want to say misremembering, it's a bit insensitive even to him as a fictional character. But uh, bottom line is I think you have a good point. Does it have a major impact on things? Not your point. Does the revelation? Eh, I guess not really. How about Madani drawing on Pilgrim in broad daylight in a city of 8 million people? I don't know how she doesn't get 911 called on her immediately from a passerby, somebody looking out a window, etc. Um, now, you want to say, oh, she did, and then she showed him the badge, showed the NYPD uh, officer, male or female, uh, her badge and said there was a perp, but, you know, kind of kind of law enforcement talked her way out of it, but they weren't going to show that because it was boring and kind of useless. Okay, fine. But again, Pete, with a lot of these things, there's a one line solution. If Pilgrim says, agent Madani, so daring that you would pull a gun on me in broad daylight, then at least someone's acknowledging that it's crazy versus, you know, cowgirl Madani drawing in the old West. This is kind of normal behavior in, you know, dry Gulch, Utah or whatever. 
So David Schultz, Matt, we're told from Poloznev, enjoys the company of men. So glad that Frank says, so what? There, that's the general public being like, all right, gay uh, candidate at this point, what a big deal. Um, You know, it would not be. But that he says that he hit it, that he lied about it would be. Are we to buy that in 2019? I think that the story finds the perfect out, which is essentially saying those who aren't going to go after him for being gay are going to go after him for hiding the fact that he was gay. Um, I'm certainly not suggesting any kind of great sympathy to, you know, to, to much of the situation, but I think that it is true. And I think regardless, dear listener, of where your political affiliations lie, I think we know that sometimes there is this, you know, damned by both sides, or if the one side doesn't sink you for the one thing, then the other side will. And I think it's it's an astute political observation, even though we can sit and say, ah, David Schultz, I don't care, whatever. What are your policies for taxes and defense and education, things like that? Um, I think it's a really, really true statement that he would be done again for either the one or the other or both. Let's pretend the Russians could ever own a president. Wow. Um, yes. What fiction, Pete? What fiction? And with these alt-right websites that the Schultzes run that Amy speaks about, uh, the idea of fake news, Matt, that you know somebody would go on Infowars and you know say that uh, David David Schultz is a fine upstanding character and these people that put out these obviously doctored photos of you know the next president of the united states are terrible people the shocking thing about this show continues to not be the violence you know there are moments where it's a little gasp worthy but come on man it's the punisher it's not the the trials that the main characters put through it continues to be the absence of radar vision or ninja skills or other ninja skills or things like that, it's, you kind of gasp and go, oh my goodness, they just copied a mirror image of our world and plunked it in here. They go there. I love that about this show. They go there on guns. They go there on politics. They go there on rhetoric. Um, Really smartly written. And this show is going to be a time capsule. Well, Pete, keeping our shows in a time capsule, making sure things are preserved for the future. It's those who go to patreon.com slash fantastic geek, making sure that our sagacious observations about the MCU shall exist for all time. Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content. There's all sorts of levels after that. So thank you again, one and all for contributing. Indeed, Pete. However, the best contribution that you have on the internet is talking to people on Twitter. How can people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R. 10,322 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter is looking back lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with the PH, all one word, like it today. 
Well, Pete, we, of course, have a new Star Trek Discovery to look forward to tomorrow, and then we'll be back podcasting The Punisher on Friday with uh, another Star Trek Discovery the day after that as we continue here. Pete, we're halfway, give or take, you know, halfway through the next episode if you want to be specific, but we're just about halfway through this landmark season that continues to, uh, well, if nothing else, Pete, it does not have the old Netflix uh, fat around the middle there, so that's appreciated. But with that, Pete... I will say adios to all the listeners and give you the final word. Call me old-fashioned. I don't work with Russians. <laughs> <laughs>